Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. I think it's also important, you know, as you're looking at the conference itself and at that experience there, that you do everything you can to foster that, to help remind people that they are part of this shared identity, that, you know, really they're all in this together. And a conference is a great place for people to support each other in, in all sorts of ways. And of course, one of those ways is helping each other to learn and develop and grow. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 306 of the Leading Learning Podcast. After not attending in-person conferences for a couple of years because of COVID, Jeff and I have been back out. And so we want to focus this episode on learning or not at conferences. And so I've recently attended three conferences in person, and Salisa, you attended two of those as well. And and after a time away from in-person conferences, this return to them and attending three in in such short order, well, that really got us thinking about learning at conferences. Admittedly, this is a very unscientific sample, but the observations that we're going to share are based on two careers worth of prior experience with conferences. So it's more than just these three, though these three are top of mind. Uh, You know, one thing that I think of is that artists tend to get the question, how long did it take you to paint that or write that or sculpt that? And I know that many artists will say something like two weeks and a lifetime. And so that's kind of where we're coming from with this episode. Our views of learning at conferences are based on attending these three recent conferences, but also on our careers before that, where we spent a lot of time at conferences. Yeah, and I'm betting that's true of, you know, so many of our listeners, maybe all of our listeners. Conferences are just such a part of professional life. Um, They're typically something that, you know, people are in some cases expected or or required to attend, but uh, a lot of us want to attend them because they are how we keep on top of what's going on in our particular industry or profession, you know, find out things, have conversations that we would not normally have. And, and of course, you know, participate in some, some workshops, some, some breakouts, some formal learning. And boy, we've done a ton of this, you know, even before Tagoras and Leading Learning, we were doing conferences at former companies, both those we created and those we worked for. We were attendees. We've been exhibitors can't remember if we had sponsors or not. I think we probably have sponsored at least one or two along the the way. And we've spoken at conferences. Both of us have spoken at many different conferences and in many different roles. And, you know, I should mention we've hosted our own conferences. We've done face-to-face conferences ourselves, and we have delivered online virtual conferences. So, yeah, conferences are just a (laughs) deeply, (laughs) deeply rooted part of our lives. And like I said, I think that's probably true for so many of our listeners as well. 
And so in what you were just saying there, Jeff, you know, we can hear that there are multiple perspectives on conferences. And so it can be instructive to keep those multiple perspectives in mind. There's the view of exhibitors. There's the view of sponsors, that of speakers and session leaders, that of attendees and that of organizers. And there are all probably going to have slightly different takes on what it would mean for a conference to be successful or for it to have, you know, return on investment. But for today, where we're going to focus is really on the attendee perspective, but with an eye toward what that attendee perspective might tell organizers about how to better design and implement conferences. Yeah. And our our focus in this conversation is really on conferences that seek to focus at least in, in part on learning. And of course, you know, not learning is not the, the main aim of, of all conferences. You can think of, you know, big expos or, or trade shows or governing meetings, but many, maybe most conferences do have at least some learning component to them. Yeah. So to borrow a term from Nancy Bacon, we're talking about learning full conferences. Nancy and Mark Nillis collaborated on an ebook called Conferences That Make a Difference, and we'll be sure to link to that as well as a past podcast episode where I got to talk to Nancy and Mark about making conferences more learningful. So check out the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 306. Their ebook is designed to be very practical in helping you make decisions about your conference, really plan it out in advance. So I do recommend that you check that out. A nuance that I'll add to our focus on learning is that Many, many conferences have mixed goals. So a conference has education sessions and a big expo hall, or the conference serves as an annual meeting of some group, and there's certain you know governing business uh, items that have to be done while that meeting is happening, and there are education sessions. So they're serving kind of multiple ends with one conference. Yeah, and a lot of that's driven by people being there in person. So if you're going to you know, gather and have people travel, you want them to get the biggest return possible on that investment of time and money. And, you know, it, it, it does take some time and money to do this. It can be really quite expensive to go to a conference. I think most are, you know, these days are hundreds of dollars, if not north of a thousand dollars to register for. And then you've got the travel, you've got the food, you've got the time away from the office. So it makes sense that, uh, you know, you'd be trying to potentially achieve a lot at uh, a conference and having those multiple goals. But, you know, more organizations, I think, would do better to be clearer about the priority of those goals um, for the organization itself, for the individuals who are going. And then, of course, the individuals, you know, the, the you as a person going to a conference want to be clear about your goals and what you want to get out of it. Well, I think that note about investment of time and money, because there's sort of what you think you're going to put in in terms of time and money. And then I, we were both delayed on at least one leg of our, our travels related to conference. So you have those sort of added inconveniences or it takes even more time than you thought you were going to have to spend on that. And and then two, while you're trying to focus on the conference, of course, home life and work life don't totally stop. Yeah, there's so many intangible costs or, you know, what the economists like to call opportunity cost related to attending a conference. So, you know, you have to keep that stuff in mind and really think about it when you're thinking about whether you're getting that return out of the experience. Now, virtual conferences aren't 
under the same pressure to put everything under one roof because it's cheaper to have multiple roofs if those roofs are virtual rather than physical. So, you know, virtual conferences offer the opportunity to disaggregate. And I'll want to say thanks to Veronica Diaz of Educause for that phrasing of it, disaggregation. We interviewed her for the most recent virtual conferences report, and we encourage you to check that out if you haven't already. So we'll include a link to the virtual conferences report at leadinglearning.com slash episode 306. But in short, I mean, the idea is that if you are thinking about virtual conferences, you suddenly don't have to have the expo hall and the you know annual meeting where you vote on bylaw changes and educational sessions. Those don't all have to happen at the same time if they aren't taking place under the same physical roof. You can break those apart. And you can even look at the educational sessions where at a place-based conference, you usually have multiple tracks. And so people are sort of choosing between, I'm going to go to the marketing track or I'm going to go to the operations track. And you could even break those apart and then have a separate virtual conference focused on marketing and a separate virtual conference focused on operations. So, you know, virtual does offer that ability to disaggregate. Yeah, I mean, virtual clearly has some some benefits. That chance to disaggregate is a, is a big one. Others, of course, include the the much broader reach of a virtual conference. Um, you know, you're you're lessening the financial barriers, the geographic barriers, the time constraints. So all of that means that you're going to be able to to reach more people. That that's huge. But of course, you know, there are things that virtual either doesn't do, or at least it's uh, perceived as not doing as well as in-person conferences. Networking, of course, is the really big one that uh, we hear about all the time. But things like, you know, trade shows, expos, the involvement of sponsors, that all gets cited as well. And it is, it's a different world. I mean, it reminds me, you know, Diane Elkins has made the point that you can have the exact same content at virtual, and you very often do but it's not the same experience. It's just, it's a different thing to be in a virtual conference than it is to be at an in-person conference. That doesn't mean it's a lesser thing. It doesn't mean that you can't get a return on investment um, like you can at an in-person conference, but you need to be looking at that return on investment in a different way. We'd like to offer four recommendations to help you make sure that learning at your conferences is as effective as possible. So these are the four recommendations. First, foster a sense of shared identity and belonging. Second, focus on the quality of your presenters. Third, limit the quantity of choices. And fourth, think beyond the content. So let's take a look at that first one, foster a sense of shared identity and belonging. And, you know, in many ways, this is built in to the conference world, because usually you're offering a conference to serve people who are in the same profession, the same industry, or who have some, you know, common uh, set of interests that you're bringing them together around. So that's there. It's there in the background. But I think it's also important, you know, as you're looking at the conference itself and at that experience there, that you do everything you can to, to foster that, to, to really help remind people that they are part of this shared identity, that, uh, you know, really they're all in this together. 
and a conference is a great place for people to support each other in, in all sorts of ways. And of course, one of those ways is helping each other to learn and develop and, and grow uh, in the context of, of whatever that identity is. Yeah. And for me, with the two conferences I attended recently, it, it was a mixed bag. At one conference, I really felt that I was part of the community. I, I had that sense of shared identity. I felt like I belonged. You know, that came across in, in the messaging, you know, from the organizers leading up to the event, you know, at kind of the opening and closing, just short comments on each day. And I really felt like I belonged there. And even the sort of after session hallway type discussions, you know, people were talking about things that I cared about, that I had some familiarity with. At another, you know, I really felt kind of left out, you know, so it was sort of that bad junior high experience of there was sort of the, the in crowd. And if you didn't, you know, know other people or weren't sort of, you know, up to date on the latest trend or whatever it was, you, you kind of ended up feeling excluded. And so that actually is important, not only just because of the emotional impact, but because that sense of belonging can lead to trust and a feeling of acceptance, which means that then you feel safe. And we know that safety is one of the three conditions required for learner engagement. So any effort that a conference organizer puts into fostering a sense of identity and belonging, it isn't just, you know, rah-rah, feel-good stuff. It's actually helping to create a space where attendees can engage and learn. And of course, they're engaging with each other. They're learning with and from each other. You know, cohort-based learning is really hot right now because it's, you know, so effective. And a conference provides a chance for cohort-based learning. So for, for people to be able to be together in, in groups and, and engage in learning. So you might imagine attendees, for example, being at the same keynotes, which was the case at, um, well, that's the case at most conferences and, and some conferences are even more driven by those sort of general sessions. So people are together at those, but then maybe also smaller cohorts, those being sort of part of a track of a session, which is something we experienced recently. And that is cohort-based learning. It's just, you know, on a relatively smaller scale and, and shorter timeline than might be possible in other ways of delivering learning experiences. But that's what's happening. That's, that's a, I think, a, a significant part of conferences historically, and it's becoming a sort of more focused and, and structured uh, approach to conference learning. When you mentioned sort of the, a conference providing the opportunity for cohort-based learning, but on kind of a, a shorter timeline than, you know, a several multi-week type experience, but I think one of the powerful things of if you can really foster that sense of shared identity and belonging, that's actually going to hopefully allow and empower attendees to stay in touch after the conference. And so you could take a cohort that's kind of created at that conference, and then it can continue on and it can help make sure that the learning sticks. So you have attendees kind of reaching out to each other, talking about how they're applying something, you know, reaching out about questions. So you have that shared experience, you have those shared sessions, and those really become social learning objects. Yeah, and I think that's really important and can drive so much both formal, but more typically just the informal learning that continues on after a conference experience. When when people hear the same keynote, when they're seeing some of the same visuals, absorbing some of the same messages, those become points of reference for conversation, for discussion, for reflection going forward. You know, they become 
sort of the nexus around which people share and learn from each other. And conferences are just uh, so great for providing, for creating those sorts of shared social learning objects. So that's the first recommendation is to really foster the sense of shared identity and belonging. The second recommendation is focus on the quality of your presenters. Again, based on my recent experience, this was a real mixed bag. And I think in general, there tends to be this bifurcation. Presenters tend to be good at presenting. So sort of, you know, the mechanics. And I will just put in a little quick caveat that admittedly presenting is different than teaching. But still, you know, you have session leaders who tend to kind of be good at that mechanics of presenting. Or you tend to get session leaders that really understand the audience, the attendees. And that's often because they're coming from that community. And I think depending on your field or industry or profession, it can be harder or easier to find session leaders who really excel at both. You know, just as an example, the National Speakers Association, you know, their members know what it's like to have to hustle and do the business development as a speaker and their speakers. So, you know, they're going to bring both that presenting piece and the content piece. And I guess as a, you know, counterexample, this is probably stereotyping a little bit, but you know, if you come from a hyper technical field, then the folks who really get the content and the context may not be natural presenters. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know how many conference sessions I've been in over time where, you know, there was a crowd pleaser in front of the room and I walked out and a day later, I couldn't tell you a thing that that person actually said. And on the flip side, somebody who clearly knows their stuff and is clearly offering high quality content. But again, it's just, it, it can be a slog to sit there and, and try to absorb that. And, and, and some of that responsibility definitely is on the learner. Either way, you know, you need to be able to engage with that content, you know, take your notes, do practice your good learning habits. But let's face it, you know, how good the presenter is or, or isn't and how effective they can be in, in making it a learning experience does matter. It's one of the reasons that we developed presenting for impact. Uh, really, we developed it because a conference organizer, somebody who, you know, is responsible for making sure that effective learning is delivered at conferences and in continuing education sessions asked us to create it. And so we created, you know, presenting for impact as a resource to help raise the quality of presenters to help bolster learning at conferences, both online and off, and then, you know, other types of virtual presentations. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Anybody who's interested in presenting for impact, it's free. If you want to be able to offer that as a resource out to your speakers, or if you are a speaker and want to be able to access it, you'll be able to find a, a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And I think economics, you know, come into play here, of course, because of just the sheer cost, conference organizers might not go after, you know, all top folks. Instead, they tend to spend a pretty big chunk of the budget on a handful of presenters, typically the keynoters. And then the concurrence tend to be that real mixed bag. And so on top of their kind of being this mixed bag, as an attendee, I don't have a lot to go on usually to help me choose. You know, I might have a title and a description, and those are often written months before the actual session is designed. And I think we all know that an instructor can make or break a session, but if you haven't had the chance to get to know or see a presenter before, how do you know whether she's going to be really great or really terrible? 
the host organization, the organization putting on the conference might have past ratings for a speaker, but I don't know of organizations making that information available to attendees to potentially use in their decision-making. You know, this would be kind of a, a Yelp sort of approach to sessions where you see who, who has the five-star reviews. And I'm not necessarily saying that they should, but, you know, keep in mind that your attendees have so little to go on often in terms of trying to choose the best choice for them out of whatever concurrent sessions are happening at any given moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting point. And I, of course, you know, for, I guess, sort of political reasons or just general politeness, you're not going to see it happen because in so many cases, these people are volunteers, you know, who are giving their time to do this. And of course, you don't want to <laughs> have them subjected to a one-star rating or a two-star rating, uh, nobody showing up in their session. I mean, it's interesting in the academic world and in, in universities, uh, there, there is at least one site that does the professor ratings and it's got to be pretty rough if you're <laughs> if you're a professor and seeing those ratings come in. But, you know, it probably keeps you on your game in a way, in a way you wouldn't otherwise. Well, right. And, and to your point, too, it's not the universities that are making those ratings no, available. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose the same thing could, you know, spontaneously er erupt in the broader conference world. But I, I think it's just so, you know, it's so fragmented. Nobody's seeing enough of the same speakers enough times to be able to do that other than maybe the keynoters. There's probably a rate my keynote site out there someplace. I don't know. But in any case, so that's quality of presenters. And then we've talked about that sense of identity and belonging, both of these so important to conference learning. The third recommendation is limit the quantity of choices. You know, we've probably all seen this. You go to these, particularly the really big conferences and the overwhelming number of choices that those can, well, frankly, be overwhelming. You make attendees spend time and mental energy choosing before they ever get to a session, and it can be tough to sift through all of those choices. Yeah, I almost think of this as a, a cognitive load issue. You know, we're draining attendees mentally before a session even starts. And many attendees, as we were talking about earlier, are already stretched thin when they're at a conference. They're trying to keep things at home and at the office moving along while they're away, and they're trying to be there and be attentive in the sessions. And so I do understand the impetus to offer a lot, you know, it goes back to kind of that, you know, if you're going to have people travel, you know, let's put as much as possible under that roof. You know, you want to make sure that there's something for everyone. But I will say that in my experience, when quantity is high, quality is low, at least for some of the offerings. Yeah, I mean, you tend to have sort of, you're, you're trying to fill a, a quota, I think, with, you know, the number of sessions that you're offering and quality is bound to suffer some in that. I, I will say, you know, one thing that has been an improvement in this area, I think, at least for me, it has been is the, the rise of conference apps that give you the ability to, you know, go through the whole agenda and create your schedule out of it. I think that is a, a much better way to, or a, a way to tackle that sort of cognitive overload and then the, the the stress and the time that can come with having just way too many choices. But, you know, I think all of this probably ties back to that impetus, that drive that we all have, that particularly when you gather in person, you want to provide a lot, you know, just a lot of stuff for people to make the economics and the appeal work. But it can just so often be counterproductive. When it occurred to me at, at one of the two conferences I was at recently, where I think the ratio of, you know, kind of bust concurrent sessions to, to good concurrent sessions was was high or more bust than, than good ones. It occurred to me that 
I've seen the model of conference organizers using sort of the in-person to then create a best of online offering later. So, you know, they offer all of those concurrence, then they sort of look at the top rated ones from the in-person conference and they put those online and, and offer those, you know, at perhaps a less price point than the full in-person conference, but they sort of take those and put that best of. I was wondering then about potentially just flipping it. You know, if I'm going to have to sort of sit through a lackluster session, I'd rather do it at my desk without having flown and, you know, staying in a hotel and dealing with all of that hassle. And so I could almost imagine where, you know, what if you tried out the sessions online and then instead, you know, you know that then you have gold going into that in-person conference because you've actually vetted that. Because I do get that it's very hard for conference organizers to really have individually vetted all of the concurrent sessions, you know, prior to an in-person conference. But if you flipped it and did it online first, you actually would indirectly sort of have a way through that virtual offering first to vet those sessions and figure out which ones really are the winners. Yeah, that's kind of a, a workaround, I think, for not having that Yelp, that rating system for presenters, if, if you at least have the ability to, to pilot them, basically, you know, before they show up in, in person and you really go, because it's, it's usually a good bit more effort to get somebody there in person. There's, there's expense involved in that, both for the organization, the organizer, and for the person who's going to be presenting. And I'll note related to this, you know, out of the three conferences that we went to recently, the one I feel like I got by far the most out of had the fewest number of sessions by far. And one day of those was everybody in the same sessions together to go back to that sort of, you know, cohort or potential for cohort learning, shared social learning objects, that sort of thing. And I'll also say with that particular conference, even though there wasn't this sort of online first to vet people, they got people to speak at that who you knew were good speakers because you could see those people speak in many other instances. They'd been on you know videos and webinars and there were all sorts of opportunities to see the people who spoke at this uh, particular conference before they ever showed up at this conference. So I don't think the conference organizer had any doubt that they pretty much had rock stars in the room for most of those sessions. I won't say every one of them knocked it out of the park, but it was a much higher quality level in general across the board. And I think it was a smaller experience in terms of sessions, a more shared experience for the attendees. And I'll also say it was, it was a smaller conference overall. I mean, it still wasn't tiny. There were, there were hundreds of people there, but it felt like a much more manageable group of people where you could actually connect with people well. And I think, you know, that that can be a factor. I'm not an expert in this, but I have heard tell of Dunbar's number that, you know, I think the number of stable, meaningful relationships we can have is 150. And of course, a stable, meaningful relationship is not necessarily what you're getting at a conference, but still it, it points to what most human beings can kind of manage. And I, I think even within the context of a conference like that particular one, after that day of everybody having shared sessions together did split into tracks. And I'm betting each of those tracks was not a whole lot bigger than, than 150 people or so. So you had these sort of cohorts of people going through things together where you're starting to see the, the same people again and again, even though in this case, I knew none of these people. Like I didn't show up with, you know, my buds that I was going to network there or that sort of thing, you know, so I really was getting to know people anew. And I think it helped, you know, that there were fewer sessions, the way the sessions were structured and that there were fewer people at that. And I think I walked out of that one having learned more than at any of the other conferences that I've been to recently. 
Absolutely. And we're going to move to the fourth recommendation. But before we do that, I realize we should say, you know, we're not naming names when we're talking about these conferences, not because we're trying to be cagey, but just because we want to be able to speak freely and we're not trying to give anyone a bad name. You know, we're just trying to pull out some general ideas and recommendations for what we think makes for an effective conference. Yeah, we, I mean, and we know people are doing their best at this and this stuff is hard. I mean, like we said, we've we've hosted and organized conferences ourselves. It is tough to get the right lineup in the right way with the right people who are really going to deliver the right stuff in a way that people are going to walk away and say, boy, I really learned something. And you also have to get the right attendees there because even as an organizer, even if the organizer does all of that, you still have to have the people show up willing to engage and willing to put in the mental energy and the time to really make that conference experience a learning full one. Okay, so now back to our fourth recommendation, our fourth and final recommendation, and this is to think beyond the content. And I think this gets back to the idea that part of what many people miss during COVID and the reliance on virtual was that they just kind of missed that overall experience. They missed coming together. They missed what could happen in between or outside of, you know, the 50-minute sessions. Yeah, and it jibes again with what Diane Elkins said about, you know, that the, the content can be the same, but the experience is not going to be the, the same necessarily. You know, you, you have to think about the conferences as more than content and really think about the experience overall if you want to be as successful as possible. And this doesn't mean in a showy or, or kitschy way. I've seen people say that, you know, speaking and presenting should all be all about, you know, entertainment and, and, and really, you know, grabbing people right out of the gate. And I mean, there's a, there's a place for that, but that's not really what we're talking about. You know, just truly making it a, a learning experience, you know, something that adds up to being more than the sum of the parts. Right. So I don't think we're talking about, you know, what band can you get to play right. or what hors d'oeuvres can you have? Well, those are nice. <laughs> those <also>. are nice. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's more about, again, with that sort of learning lens on. And as one example, one of the conferences I went to had, you know, on the schedule, lunch. Another one, another conference had on the schedule, lunch and networking. Now that's subtle and you might argue it doesn't do much, but I think it primes and persuades attendees to remember that that 90 minute block isn't only about eating. It's about making connections. It's about taking some of the sessions ideas and, and the things that you've been covering during the day and talking about those, starting to think about application. So, you know, these are just small little things where you can help remind attendees to really think kind of beyond just being in the sessions. Yeah, there really is almost a kind of a meta aspect to content, you know, how it's positioned, or I guess really it's just context. How are you creating the context for that content? And, you know, you mentioned priming and, and persuading Salisa, and, you know, that's something we've talked with Bob Cialdini about, sort of the, the name and, and influence and persuasion. And just the way you say things, the elements you put around things, have so much influence on how people are ultimately going to engage with them and what they're going to get out of them. And so that brings us to the end of our four recommendations. To recap, they are foster a sense of shared identity and belonging, focus on the quality of your presenters, limit the quantity of choices, 
And finally, think beyond the content. That's it for our look at learning or not at conferences based on a wholly unscientific sampling. For full show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, please visit leadinglearning.com slash episode 306. In the show notes, you'll see options for subscribing to the podcast, and we hope you will subscribe if you haven't yet. We like subscription numbers because they give us some visibility into the impact of the podcast. And we'd also be grateful if you take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts, especially if you enjoy the show. So Lisa and I personally appreciate those reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a rating. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 306, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Mm-hmm.